The 1930s were not kind to Shakespeare in America. Warner Brothers' Midsummer Night's Dream flopped at the movie theaters. Benny Goodman's version died on Broadway. MGM's Romeo and Juliet lost nearly a million dollars. But that didn't stop people from trying. Each Monday night at this time, during July and August, the Columbia Network has brought you special full-hour radio adaptations of seven of William Shakespeare's greatest plays. Buried in this graveyard summertime slot was a plan. A plan to revive Shakespeare and raise him back to the place he'd held in American culture half a century before. Starring in tonight's performance of Twelfth Night are Tallulah Bankhead as Viola, Orson Welles as Duke Orsino, Sir Cedric Hardwick as Malvolio. For the next 50 years, this plan for Shakespeare became an obsession for one of those players. A one-man crusade waged by one of the century's biggest personalities. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The person we're talking about is the actor, director, raconteur, magician, tap dancer, commercial spokesman, Orson Welles. I know there are younger people who, if they know Orson Welles at all today, it's from clips like this on YouTube. Parmesan will sell no wine before it's time. There was a time when Orson Welles was one of America's biggest celebrities. In 1938, he made national headlines when the radio show he produced did a version of The War of the Worlds that was so realistic, people actually thought the country was under attack by Martians. Then he went to Hollywood and made Citizen Kane, which is still considered one of the greatest movies of all time. And he did all of this by the age of 26. For his entire life, though, Wells's obsession was Shakespeare. He produced and starred in Shakespeare plays on Broadway and directed and starred in multiple versions of Shakespeare's work on film. In 1999, Michael Onderegg, then a professor at the University of North Dakota, explored all the elements of Orson Welles' mission to save Shakespeare and put it down in a book, Orson Welles, Shakespeare, and Popular Culture. We invited Professor Anderegg to come in and talk about some of the innovations in Shakespeare that Wells brought about, innovations that are largely taken for granted today. We call this podcast, A Rescue, A Rescue. Professor Anderegg is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, before we get to Orson Wells and his, his long association with Shakespeare, I think we should remind everyone that after Wells did War of the Worlds and Citizen Kane, he never had that kind of success or anywhere near a success as big as those. And in fact, he spent the next 40 years or so a little like Paris Hilton, right? He was famous for being famous. <laughs> yes. I mean, that is certainly part of what you can say about his subsequent career. After Citizen Kane, as he himself once said, it was sort of downhill. So his career continued in various ways. A lot of it took place in Europe. And he also worked as a guest star in a number of movies. You know? Right, movies and television. I remember and him television. from doing spots on TV, like appearances yes. on variety shows, and he would recite Shakespeare while putting on his makeup, and he'd also do some magic. And it That's really right. seemed kind of right. sad. And he also appeared on TV shows like I Love Lucy, yeah, I right? He did. I just spoke to Orson Welles' agent. He's all set to do the benefit. 
Hey, I'll meet you here this afternoon for rehearsal. Oh, that's yes, wonderful. Listen, is he gonna do the same act that he did in Las Vegas? Yeah, some Shakespeare and, of course, his magic routine. Oh, that is just great. What time am I supposed to meet him? Where, essentially, he played Orson Welles. He was a guest on Ricky Ricardo's uh, uh, nightclub. Right, we, we have a clip. We have that clip. Let's play ah, that. Yes, okay. Please, Mr. Wells, what man art thou that thus be screened at night, so stumblest on my counsel? Lucy, can you see that Mr. Wells does not want to do Shakespeare with you? You keep out of this. <laughs> By a name, dear heart, I know not how to tell you how I am. My name is hateful to myself. Had I it written, I would tear the word. Had I had written, I would... I know, I guess I'm a little nervous at last playing with the great Orson Welles. Oh, why don't we do my favorite scene? What's For that? fear of that, I still will stay with thee and never from this palace of dim night depart again. Oh, that one? Well, I'm already dead in that scene. <laughs> yes. yes. Here, here will I set up my everlasting rest. But Mr. Welles, you just have a soliloquy in that one. And shake the yoke of inauspicious stars from this a... world-wearied flesh. Eyes, look your last. I... Arms, take your last embrace. And lips, owe you the doors of breath, seal with a righteous kiss. A dateless bargain to engrossing death. Come you know, one thing I didn't know till I read your book was that his whole Shakespeare history goes back to when he was a kid in high school, and, and he attended this pretty remarkable-sounding Todd school for boys. That's right. He was The extent of his formal education were the years he spent at the Todd school from the age from 12 to 16. And... Uh, that school was very progressive, uh, had a lot of great facilities, radio station, uh, its own printing press, and it was very much focused on creative kids. I mean, there are stories that when he was five years old, he was already reciting Shakespeare. But Was his himself... voice already that deep then? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and he has himself debunked some of those stories. But uh... And he was in Hamlet when he was 16. That's right. And he was able to, after school, you know, he went to Ireland and uh, supposedly he was going to do a, a, he wanted to be a painter. And he traveled around in a donkey cart and uh, painted things. But then he ran out of money and he ended up in Dublin at the Gate Theater. And that's where he did some of his first important uh, commercial theater. After that, he came back to the United States. And that's when he, uh, he was hired to be in Three plays, actually, but one Shakespeare was Romeo and Juliet, and got a lot of attention for doing that. And somewhere uh, in here, he collaborated with the headmaster from that prep school on a series of books, or, or I guess you could call them publications or pamphlets, called Everybody's Shakespeare. W- yes. What were they like? They were actually, the original versions of those were actually printed on that Todd School press. And... They were illustrated with drawings that Wells himself made uh, based on famous actors. And they were put in a context where Shakespeare was meant to be accessible. The whole idea was, and also meant to be acted. The text was sort of aimed at a secondary school market where teachers could employ them as a way of getting students to read and recite 
and think about Shakespeare as theater, which was not the usual way of teaching Shakespeare at that time. So, really? How was Shakespeare taught in schools at that time? And we're talking more, now about the 1930s, late 30s, right? right? This is around the, th- the 30s. And generally speaking, it was more a matter of the language, the interpreting what the words meant, that kind of approach, and also dealing with the ethical and moral issues that Shakespeare's plays bring up. There was very little of the idea that students should act out the plays. So Wells was contributing to that, you know, eventually what became perhaps the primary way of dealing with Shakespeare in the schools. That's interesting. So was the idea that you'd use Shakespeare as a kind of social hygiene and you would just get bits and pieces of speeches and passages in these in these texts and, and that's how it was taught and, and the only performing you would do were these bits and pieces? That's right. And as well, they were used for oratory. So by doing this, Everybody Shakespeare, it sounds like Wells was both trying to instill an appreciation of the actual plays of, of Shakespeare and, and introduce them for their own sake. But was he also out to make a buck? Well, you know, uh, certainly it, it, there was a financial side to it, uh, no question. Although when he first printed them at the Todd School, at that point the market would not have been particularly large and he, he would not have been known. Now, a few years later, when he was famous already, you know, and it didn't take very long, but once he did his Macbeth and his uh, Julius Caesar on Broadway, his name was sufficient that that Harper and Brothers reprinted the text, using actually some of the same plates that they had used to print it in uh, Woodstock, Illinois, reprinted it. Originally, it was edited by Roger Hill and Orson Welles. When they were reprinted, it was edited by Orson Welles and Roger Hill. And hmm. uh, at the same time, he produced a number of recordings. Act one, scene one, Rome, a public place. It is a festive, sunshiny day, and a crowd of common people are gathered here. Two tribunes enter, Flavius and Morellus. Hence, home, you idle creatures. Get you home. Is this a holiday? What, though you're not being mechanical, you ought not walk upon a laboring day without the sign of your profession? Speak, what trade art thou? Why, sir, a carpenter. Where is thy leather apron and thy rule? What dost thou with thy best apparel on? He wheels about and waves at another. You, sir, what trade are you? The commoner bows low, his eyes twinkling. A trade, sir, that I hope I may use with a safe conscience. The recordings were sold along with the text and also uh, very much appealed to the schools again because they could play uh, records of Wells and his uh, fellow cast members in a way that had never been done before. I think you mentioned, too, in the book, there was an internal memo about that project by Columbia Records that put out the, these things, right? And the subject heading was yes. cashing in on the classics. Exactly, which uh, which suggests the, you know, the way Shakespeare could be looked at in this period. And uh, Wells, in a way, found ways of cashing in on the classics throughout his career. Right, and it epitomizes really your thesis, which is that he navigated through this lowbrow, highbrow use of Shakespeare throughout his whole career. But I want to pick up on something you just mentioned, which is the, at the time, referred to a play that, that Wells staged, the voodoo Macbeth, and, the, and what was called the fascist Julius Caesar. These were his most well-known productions. Remind us what those yeah. were like, and, and how did they get those nicknames? Uh, yes. Well, the, the Voodoo Macbeth was a production of the WPA. Uh, so it was a government-sponsored project. Wells was hired by John Hausman, who was in charge of the Negro theater branch 
of that theatrical project to direct something in Harlem and using African-American actors, African-American stage people uh, to do something that would be eye-catching, that would employ a lot of people. And so Wells chose to do Macbeth. My name is Macbeth. Turn, hellhound, turn. Of all men else, I have avoided thee. But get thee back. My soul is too much charged with blood of thine already. Then you'll be coward and live to be the show in the gaze of time. We'll have thee as our era monsters are. Painted upon a pole and under it, here may you see the tyrant. I will not yield. Though Burnham would be come to Dunsinane, yet I will try the land. I have no The setting was basically the period after the slave revolts in Haiti. But at the same time, it was Shakespeare's language. <laughs> Thou losest labor, for I bear a charmed life which must not yield to one of woman born. Despair thy charm, and let the angel whom thou still hast served tell thee Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. <laughs> I'm to be the tongue that tells me so. Well, and just to give us context, too, how much of a departure w- was this from other Shakespeare performances of Macbeth at the time? Well, it was, you know, it was a total departure. There was really nothing like it uh, before. And uh, it really made his reputation. And it also demonstrated that, yes, African-American actors can do Shakespeare. Why not? And the fascist Julius Caesar? Okay, well, that was—so Wells did a few more productions for the WPA— and uh, he and John Hausman decided to go off on their own to see if they can do something in the commercial theater. So Wells chose to do Julius Caesar on Broadway. And here the, the gimmick, if you want, or the idea was to set it in a modern-day uh, fascist Europe. Friend, chew upon this. Brutus had rather be a villager than to repute himself a son of Rome. Under these hard conditions, this time is like to lay upon us. Farewell, both. This is, in fact, what we're used to. Many productions of Shakespeare now, they take their cue from topical events, from they allude to the political situation going on, or, you know, they... That's right. And they often come under the charge of making Shakespeare into a spectacle. Yes, uh, As opposed true. to... Straight, which is, I, I guess, in the 1930s, they were up there in Elizabethan garb declaiming yes. Shakespeare. Um, yes. And I think the way you put this is that Wells almost always produced Shakespeare as an event. Right. He produced Shakespeare so that it would call attention to itself. And the other thing about the 1937 production is that it was very simple, uh, using uh, boards and, and steps it was really the lighting that created the, the effect. You know, it was put on about the same time that Thornton Wilder was doing Our Town, also on a bare stage. So that called attention to itself as well, particularly when elaborate productions of Shakespeare, Tallulah Bankhead had just totally failed in a huge uh, production of Antony and Cleopatra. It called attention to itself for its simplicity and for its debt to European methods of staging. So Wells did these everybody's Shakespeare booklets, and he did these Shakespeare Mercury recordings and also Mm -hmm. the plays. And then he went on to the movies, and he makes Macbeth at Republic Pictures, which was a low-budget 
outfit that primarily had put out westerns. Um, and the, the here, this is in the in the era that the, the big guns like Warner Brothers and MGM had spent a ton of money on their attempts at Shakespeare with the likes of Mickey Rooney and other stars, and they'd failed at the box office for the most part. Yes. So what made yeah. Wells think he could succeed where they had flopped? Well, that was his challenge, and he thought he could do it because he was doing it at this low-budget studio under uh, a rather tight shooting schedule and not a whole lot of money. I mean, it was not produced at the same cost of a Roy Rogers uh, Western, but at the same time, it was far less money than MGM and Warner Brothers had spent on their production. Well, I I bet a lot of us haven't seen, most of us probably haven't seen Orson Welles' um, Macbeth. So remind us, what were some of its challenges? Well, because of the budget, in part, he was employing the more the standing sets at Republic Studios, which is to say a lot of caves and boulders. They're uh, so cheesy. It reminded me of Lost uh, in Space. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's right. I mean, it is. Uh, the sets are cheesy, and so are the costumes. Uh, and they and, speak uh, in a really heavy burr, <clears throat> Scottish burr accent. Well, he did. He did have them speak in this Scottish burr. Partly, uh, he claimed later, because he thought that it would allow the actors, it would force the actors in a way to slow down their delivery and therefore make the lines more easily understandable. Think of this, good peers, but as a thing of custom, tis no other, only it spoils the pleasure of the time. Shame itself, why do you make such faces when all's done you look but on a stool? Avant! With my sight, let the earth hide thee. Thy bones are marrowless. Thy blood is cold. Thou hast no speculation in those eyes which thou dost glare with. The fit is momentary. Upon a thought, he will again be well. What man dare, I dare. Actually, I think it's perfectly understandable. But the studio bosses at Republic and some of the other people just thought this was this was terrible. They couldn't understand what the actors were saying, <laughs> and my my feeling is that they couldn't understand it because they couldn't understand Shakespeare. You know, this was not a, a a high class group of producers at Republic, but in any case, the the studio was so upset that they forced Wells to redo the soundtrack. This caused a lot of problems because Wells at this point was in Europe. So he had to do this work long distance. You hear the owls screaming, the crickets cry. They're not used to it. No. As I descended. Oh, it's a mess. It's a mess. And we should remind everyone that he plays Macbeth, and he's also the director of this picture. Exactly. So it's just a nightmare on all fronts. On and all on fronts. top of everything, it's just a tragedy that Laurence Olivier's Hamlet came out right before Wells's Macbeth. And it came out yes. to, it, it was just earth shattering. Everyone fell to their knees and worshipped Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. It sounds so yes. humiliating. It was, yeah, it was a, it was a terrible coincidence because uh, Olivier's film cost more than twice as much as Wells's did. So it had, uh, you know, much more of a attractive decor, mise-en-scene and so forth. And so every time, you know, reviewers would be reviewing Wells's film, they would also simultaneously be reviewing Olivier's film, and always to the detriment 
So is it unfair? What do you think of, of the film, Macbeth? Well, when all is said and done, well, I'm, even though I find fascinating things in Wells's Macbeth, it's a mixed bag. The, the cast is not great. And even Wells himself, it's not one of his better performances. Um, and, and Wells did have a tendency when he was directing and acting in something that he would spend all of his energies on the directing of everybody else and would spend little time on his own performance. And it shows, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. Well, speaking of mixed bags, what about his 1952 Othello? And there are at least six yes, different well, versions of this film. Yeah, right, right. Although uh, that point can be exaggerated. Again, this film was essentially dubbed after it was made. But um, I think Othello is quite superior to, to Macbeth. I think it's a really powerful film. It was made under totally different circumstances. Wells did it as an independent producer, so he had to raise all the money for the film himself, and he could only do it in bits and pieces. So the film was shot over a number of years instead of the 21 days uh, in which Macbeth had been filmed. But often he had to shut down production, go find a, a, a gig somewhere, and then come back and restart it. And it meant sometimes that some of the actors who had been available before were no longer available for the dubbing or whatever. So he had a lot of issues and problems with it. But I think it's an extraordinary film. Despite all the money troubles and the production issues with uh, uh, all of these films, I you do see these amazing camera angles, just fascinating close-ups and, and the way he follows actors around a set or up and down stairs. It's such immediate filming. It's so modern. And and you have a lot of things, uh, positive things to say about uh, Wells' uh, Othello production. Uh, for instance, you, you write that while dispensing with so much of Shakespeare's verbal poetry, Wells creates a visual poetry of his own. And I think you're referring to that kind of dynamic staging. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, visually it's an extraordinary film. And uh, it has elements of, uh, for example, uh, the works of Eisenstein and some of his later films. Oh, yeah. He does wonderful things with lighting in that film. Absolutely. You know, and and so, you know, you could say that at the same time that he does that and and it's wonderful, he does perhaps cut a good bit of, uh, of the text of the play in order to concentrate on some of those visual things. He could be critiqued for that, but I think that uh, where he does cut the text, he finds ways of creating a similar effect and a similar meaning through the way he edits, through the way he uh, photographs the action. I think it's an extraordinary film in, in spite of rough patches, and some of those rough patches have to do with the soundtrack. Well, speaking of rough uh, soundtracks, I just recently watched Chimes at Midnight. Jesus, the days that we've seen. Ah, yes. said John, said I will. We have heard the chimes at midnight, Master Robertsell. That we have, that we have, that we have. In faith, Sir John, we have. Jesus, the days that we have seen. And this was Orson Welles's uh, work in which he stitches together excerpts from a number of the plays to explore the character of Falstaff. And the sound levels are unlistenable. I could not get through this this film. They go from too quiet to just eardrum bursting. I kept waking my husband up in the middle of the night watching it um, when horns suddenly blared announcing a royal arrival. Well, uh, it's true. And some of that 
I mean, I don't know which version you watched because the the latest Blu-ray DVD does fix a lot of those problems. So, uh, what do you so want you us watch, to take away though from Chimes at Midnight? I think it's perhaps in a, in a way, in terms of his uh, approach to Shakespeare, I think it is his most faithful to the text of Shakespeare's play, even though he's combining several plays and, and doing several other. Uh, things in presenting it, he is presenting the the essence of the Falstaff story in his film. Uh, there's very little in the way of, perhaps you could argue, self-indulgent cinematic tricks in this film. It is very much dedicated to getting across Shakespeare's view of Falstaff. And beyond that, I think it's Wells's finest performance. What the devil has thou to do with the time of day? Unless ours were cups of sack, clocks the tongues of boards, dials the signs of leaping houses, and the blessed sun himself a fair hot wench in flame-colored taffeta, I see no reason why thou shouldst be so superfluous as to demand the time of the day. Indeed, you come near me now, Hal, for we that take purses go by the moon. How now? Who picked me pocket? Posters! Posters! Sir John! I fell asleep here and had my pocket picked. <laughs> you think I keep thieves in my house? My lord, I pray you hear me. Oh, too, I know you well enough. I know you, Sir John. Oh, you owe me money, Sir John. And now you pick a quarrel with me to beguile the house. This house is turned bawdy house. Bawdy house. Pick pockets. <laughs> We cannot lodge and board a dozen or fourteen gentlewomen who live honestly by the prick of their needles, but it's thought we keep a bawdy house. Shall I not take my knees in my inn, but I shall have my pocket picked? You owe me money, Sir John. <laughs> what is I lose, Jack? Wilt thou believe me, Some Forty pounds. What? And a gold seal ring of my grandfather's worth some... Putting Falstaff at the center makes perfect sense, and he is at the right age and almost at the right weight to be playing uh, Falstaff. There's also a great cast. Yes, John Gilgood is the king. Shall our coffers then be emptied to redeem a traitor home? No, on the barren mountain let him starve. For I shall never hold that man my friend whose tongue shall ask me for one penny cost to ransom home revolted Mortimer. Revolted Mortimer? He never did fall off by sovereignty, but by the chance of war. My blood has been too cold and temperate, unapt to stir at these indignities, and you have found me. For accordingly you tread upon my patience. All the elements come together in Chimes of Midnight in a way that isn't entirely true of his other two uh, Shakespeare films. Well, we've talked a lot about Wells and his explorations of Shakespeare and this kind of traveling between a highbrow and lowbrow entertainment and and art. Is that how Wells thought about Shakespeare all of his career and not just Shakespeare? I mean, did he take this aesthetic highbrow approach to whatever he was doing, but also a pop culture lowbrow marketing approach at the same time? Well, I think that's a good way of putting it. I think he was always caught between the kind of highbrow approach that's represented by Shakespeare's works. But he also believed that 
it wasn't just a matter of making it commercial, but a matter of making it popular, and the two would go together. But uh, I don't think Wells ever thought primarily in terms of money, frankly. I mean, if he had, he would have done things you know, differently. He would have had more of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I mean, he, he thought of money as something that, that he can use to make something new, make something different. But, of course, he was, you know, he had enough ego that he wanted whatever he did to have a large audience and to capture people's attention. But if Wells's goal, as I somewhat suggest, it's not something he ever said himself, was to mediate between high culture and low culture, I don't think he ever quite succeeded in, in doing that. I think that his films could be seen, of course, just by making Shakespeare films. You are, in a sense, taking high culture and turning it into at least middle-brow culture. Otherwise, what's the purpose of filming Shakespeare? You're trying to bring it to a large audience. Well, ironically enough... Uh, none of the three Shakespeare films that Wells made did bring Shakespeare to a large audience. No, but he always, throughout his whole career, played with this tension between aesthetic, um, taking the high road aesthetically and being very intellectual and, and being very involved at the highest level in, in Shakespeare's poetry and in, in the history of the works and in, and in all the works that he did, but also being that Vegas magician. That's right. And again, to go back to the I Love Lucy example, really that episode just encapsulates that problem. He's, he's on the program because of his Shakespeare, essentially. And Lucy sees him as, you know, at one point she said, oh, I think you're the greatest uh, Shakespearean actor in the world. I think you're the greatest Shakespearean actor in the whole world. I think you're better than John Gielgud. I think you're better than, than Maurice Evans. I think you're better than, than Sir Ralph Richardson. You left out Laurence Olivier. Well, I think you're better than he. Uh, that was a sore point. <laughs> it's like a sore point. Exactly, exactly. So that's the way Lucy sees him. But uh, Ricky, I think, is probably more interested in Wells doing his magic. And so, you know, Wells is feeding in himself to that tension and that image. You know, is he a popular entertainer? Is he a highbrow Shakespearean? And... You know, I don't think he saw himself as being necessarily one or the other. You know, I think he clearly saw himself as being as being both in some in some essential way. Well, I could talk about this forever, I, but it has been such a joy talking with you today. Thanks very much for this. Well, thank you. Michael Onderegg is Professor Emeritus of English at the University of North Dakota. His book, Orson Welles, Shakespeare and Popular Culture, was published by Columbia University Press in 1999. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. A Rescue, A Rescue was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had production help from Steve Griffith and Randy Johnson at Minnesota Public Radio and Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquart at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, Folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.